Welcome to Half Stack Data Science, the show about data science in the real world. Uh, my name is David Asboth. I'm a data scientist. With me is Dr. Sean McGurr. Hi, Sean. Also a data scientist. And uh, together we came up with this phrase, Half Stack Data Scientist, in December of 2017. So we thought we'd start by telling you a little bit about ourselves, the work we do, where we do it, and what we mean by half-stack data science and half-stack data scientists. Cool. Uh, so why don't we start with you then, Sean? So how did you become a lead data scientist? Become a lead data scientist by uh, first, first doing some data science um, as a consultant in a, in a, in a data, data consultancy um, in Wellington, New Zealand called Optimal Business Intelligence. And I was hired there to do analytical modeling was what it was called. That's what the trendy name was in 2014, early 2014. Um, and that was, you know, essentially predictive analytics, another thing that was a hot, hot name for it at the time. Um, the skills that required was people who understand statistical modeling and, and can use data and statistics to make projections or predictions about, you know, events that haven't happened yet. Um, over time, I morphed my um, job title from, uh, I think it was initially data archaeologist to data science-ish. Um, not, a, not a typo, it was data science-ish because a lot of data science is not what um, you read about on the internet or see on TV and movies or see on Netflix and, and on House of Cards. Yeah, we don't do that dancing. Uh, we don't do that dancing. Not at least not to that music. No. And all the clothes stay on. Um, recommend that clip. We'll put it in the show notes. That's yes, what people that's on podcasts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Put it in the show notes. Oh, the link to gone the full uh, professional now to the Cambridge Analytica prototype data scientist in Netflix's <laughs> uh, House of Cards. And before, so before you know, then I was a data a science ish. So sort of doing a mix of business intelligence, data warehousing, and when I could get the work um, more predictive data science. Um, immediately before that and sort of during that, I was uh, spending a long time finishing a PhD, which any, any PhD students listening will know the, the, the pain of that. Uh, and that was in political science uh, from the University of Michigan, which is uh, one of, was one of the pioneers back in the 60s of the quantitative study of uh, of politics, so using data, initially surveys, but later other data sources to try and understand political f phenomena. So my, unlike a lot of PhD data scientists, I don't have a, a PhD in machine learning or computer science or not even physics, but rather in understanding the political world, um, turns out to be quite useful because a lot of the things that people want to predict are about people uh, acting and making trade-offs which is what politicians and, and voters uh, are doing all the time. And they're doing that within some kind of set of rules or institutions. And, and political science is the, is the study of how people act uh, to get what they want, um, given some rules of some game that they're playing. Um, yeah, and so that culminated all in, in me realizing through that period of optimal business intelligence that um, I had a bunch of skills that were marketable as, as a... A data scientist and I had 
experience in my past that uh, if I if I reframed it would make me very eligible for these um, uh, jobs. How about yourself? What brought you to the wonderful world of half stack data science? So uh, my training is originally in software development, and uh, I spent probably about six years working as a software and web developer. Um, and as many, I think, IT teams end up uh, in the world, uh, we actually had a remit that was a bit wider than just developing software. Anything that was computer-related and didn't have a plug uh, came to us, right. uh, including generating reports for people. We used a terrible piece of software called Crystal Reports, um, which wasn't terrible at the time it was created, I'm sure, but it had been around for... 10 years in the business and so I was you could have been 5 or 6 versions behind as well uh, we almost certainly were yeah um, and, and so like part of my job ended up being people asking questions about data and me creating reports um, but that wasn't my day job it was just something that we had to do on the side do enough of it to keep the business happy but it wasn't like our team's responsibility to do that what kind of um, questions why is this number Three, not seven, or it was partly that it right. was partly reports didn't match up to the actual web front end of the data entry system for various reasons. Classical, classical problem of any yeah um, reporting. Yeah, and sometimes clients actually wanted to dig a bit deeper into the way they um, used our services. Uh, so, so there were some BI related tasks that I ended up doing. Uh, and then just sort of over the years, I realized that that I felt like the impact of that is really high in like getting some sort of meaning out of this data that we've collected almost by accident. Like we have a, a system where you people enter data. It ends up as a data set, which then is the source of reports, but it was never intended to be a data set as such, just something that powers a transactional system. Right. Uh, and then, so I just got really interested in that and I thought, well, maybe I should do that for a living. Uh, it turns out by then it was called data science, <laughs> which is even more popular than, uh, anything it could have been called in the past, like statistical modeler or Indeed. anything like that. Uh, and so I actually took the plunge and did a master's degree in data science to, uh, reskill myself and pivot my career. Uh, so now I'm a data scientist and that was sort of my entry point. So I had the hacking skills part of the famous uh, data science Venn diagram. And it was the maths part and the stats part that I had to skill up on. And like like you, I also had skills in so talking to people and non-technical people. Um, yeah, that's a thing that's massively understated, I think, in, in most of the articles on the internet about what you need to become a data scientist. Uh, a lot of them seem to have a little afterthought at the end. Oh, and by the way, it's really good. You'll have to communicate what you're trying to do and you have to get uh, people to articulate what their questions are and, and understand what impact you could make and tell people what you found. But that's almost sort of an asterisk. Oh, and by the way, apart from all these cool machine learning models and, you know, techniques for squeezing knowledge out of the data, oh, you also have to communicate it to people who are not computers and not, not data scientists. Um, and I think that's, that's a big thing, I guess, skill or competency that's not on that 
Venn diagram, I guess some people probably put it in the uh, domain knowledge, but I personally wouldn't. We're, of course, talking about Drew Conway's seminal 2010, 2013, early 2010s. Early, yeah, that's... Venn diagram about the, the three core skills uh, that, that define uh, what it means to be doing data science. Um, a theme that I'm sure we'll no doubt uh, return to. Um, what's the biggest difference between your former life as a software developer and your new life as a, as a data scientist? I think part of the job is still some sort of requirements gathering. Like again, we were a small IT team, so we didn't have dedicated business analysts to right. go and speak to people. So we were the ones who had to speak to people about what it is they want. Um, and so there was an element of translating requirements uh, coming out of business people, uh, turning it into technical requirements that you could tick off. Uh, but I think in data science, the questions are much more vague because I think people know enough about software development and websites to kind of know what's possible. Yeah, so in 2017, it's like... But even, even like six, seven years ago, I think people were still right. talking in terms of like, I want a new field here, I want to drop down here. Right. So a new it screen where I type in the following details, yeah. which I then expect to be displayed in some other screen. Yes. Right. So it was, it was different forms of data collection um, based on the kind of information that we want to capture. Yeah. So that, that's quite a tight box of potential requirements that could come to you. It wasn't nebulous enough that you had to think about what it even means. And I guess as developers, you'd probably put a new field onto a form before you probably added a new screen to a, a, some website flow yes. before. And so you gather the requirements and you were probably trying to fit those requirements into boxes that you had a pretty good idea of what they, what they, what they were. So I guess contrast to that, where I guess the things that you can do are pretty well defined and what you're trying to get in, in requirements is what set of relatively well understood components need to be plugged together to make you know, to, to meet that customer need what's different about data science world surely it's you know there's there's data and there's algorithms to estimate models and then you know they sound like building blocks as well so what's what's different I think what um, what is definitely well one of the reasons that, that I was drawn to data science is that um, when people ask you to do something, you kind of already know what the solution will look like. And the details and the, the difficulty potentially is in how you get there in terms of time and effort and finding the right code library or whatever. But in data science, the thing that's challenging is you're not even sure what the answer looks like. Right. So when somebody wants to know what is an optimum way to sell my toasters or like where, which one of my um, toaster shops around the country should I sell my toasters? Like you don't necessarily know what the answer looks like. You don't know that it's an, a new button, a new drop down, a mm. new screen of something. Mm -hmm. You don't even know if it's a software product, a spreadsheet, um, just a piece of analysis, uh, a bar chart. Uh, and I actually, I found that part a lot more engaging than the technical details. Like I was never technical enough to want to get bogged down with the technical details of how you get somewhere predefined. Right. Um, my interest was always in solving problems that were ambiguous enough to be interesting, but also um, also coming up with something at the end. So not just going, oh, I don't know, that question is pretty ambiguous. I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air and 
and not come up with an answer. It's still yeah. navigating that space of, of possible things you could do to, to come up with something that generates value. I think that's something that maybe separates data science in its best formulation from things that preceded it before. So I know certainly when I was the predictive analytics guy at you know, a data consultancy, part of me being there was so that the data consultancy had a person who did that in, in, their, uh, in their portfolio who could be wheeled out to talk about uh, all the great predictions we can make about things for clients who really wanted to buy something uh, else for them given their maturity of working with data is typically data warehousing, training and solutions and, and help making their data warehouses fit for purpose in order to make business intelligence you know, faster and scalable. And so the, I guess, data science at its best is really focused on that, um, on measuring somehow the impact that's being made by uh, the predictions that are being generated. Um, it's not enough to just be able to make some predictions and to bamboozle people perhaps with the sophisticated techniques that you use to arrive at those predictions. You have to put them into, you know, to use jargon, put them into production or, or make them change the way that people behave is the way I would think about it as a social scientist. Otherwise, you haven't really done anything. You've just kind of been an expensive, uh, potentially slow or non-repeatable um, business intelligence uh, report writer. And that, that, for me, when I made that connection... That was interesting because uh, a thing that many of us who have left academia feel is a bit of a disconnect between all of the great research and data and statistics and, and things that we learn. The knowledge that accumulates in academia is actually incredible. Uh, if, it, if it weren't for politics, uh, probably most of the big problems of the world would, would actually be solvable. You know, um, But it's about how you connect the, the potential answer to actually someone's problem right, right then and there. And that's, to me, what really, you know, there were some push factors out of academia, but the thing that really pulled me in to data science once I realized that there was this sort of field uh, forming and cohering around some uh, ideas was, okay, there's always going to be a hype cycle and there's always going to be like 50% of people with the job title and 50% of data science departments are probably going to spend most of their time only ever getting to reporting and then potentially getting disbanded. But the other half have a real shot at um, really changing the way data is used um, by individuals and in organizations to improve um, decisions. And that always takes me back to something I found when I was at the consultancy, reading about the history of things that were called you know, predictive modeling and predictive analytics and, and all those things that came in the lineage before data science. In the early 90s, there was this thing called also with the acronym DS called Decision Science, which was, you know, if you, if you read um, books or articles about decision science as it was then, it, it really resonates with what data science at its best is, is becoming, which is helping people make better decisions. Sometimes maybe automating the easier of those decisions, but um, yeah, for, for me, I, I see that impact when individuals change their behavior so and I guess that's an, another difference in the ways you can apply data science 
is data science uh, at your tech company um, a thing that helps developers get from A to C without having to code a bunch of complicated stuff at, at B? Is it, is it uh, one of the building blocks that plugs into wider products? Or is it, I guess, a, a function uh, in itself, which I guess brings us neatly to where we work, which is a company called Cox Automotive. Um, we work in the, in the UK division um, in a pretty new group called Data Solutions. Um, we're owned by a really large um, US company of the same name. Um, and what do we do at Cox Automotive? We'll get to what we do in Data Solutions later, but what do we do in Cox Automotive itself? It's probably a good time to talk about our idea about the spectrum of data science and locate ourselves on it. Uh, so this is based on, was based on discussions I think we've had in the last year, um, which which I started formalizing when we talked, uh, when I did a talk at City University last November, November 2017. Um, it's just as we, we realized that the number of people who call themselves data scientists and the differences in job descriptions and job roles has to mean that there are differences in jobs type in, in types of data yeah. scientists despite sharing a job title um, there's a lot of places to be on that Venn diagram yes and yeah I think it, it's the thing we started talking about basically the moment we met when you interviewed for a job here yes like what what dissatisfies us in a way about the way data science is described yeah um, on the internet versus how it's practiced in what we think is the majority of the use cases yeah, because, so what we do here, like, we are not Google or Facebook or Amazon. We're not a data-first company. We're not a company that was created with data analysis in mind, um, whereas some of these bigger companies obviously treat data and data analysis and machine learning as first-class citizens of that, that really power the what they do. It's the most valuable thing, yeah. Generate, yeah. Um, and so we, we sort of decided on this, this spectrum of, like, type A and type B data science, where A is like the academic um, researcher at Google who is proper, like trained as a researcher, almost certainly has a PhD in something um, very numeric and very pure hardcore. Mathematics Either pure mathematics or science, or science okay. but enough, enough like predictive or, or sort of hardcore mathematical elements to be a researcher and push the boundaries of machine learning. Whereas we sit very much on the type B end of the spectrum, which is like business data science, where you take a traditional organization uh, like ours, uh, which is not set up to be a data-first company, um, but by virtue of existing for many years uh, with, with the relevant data. technologies, has yeah. accumulated data that now they are realizing is actually a really valuable asset if only somebody could come in and use it. Um, and do something with it. So that was the remit of Data Solutions two and a half years ago. Um, and now there are like 30, 40 of us working on, on these related problems. But on the type B end of the spectrum, it's a lot more um, ambiguous. Like it's not clear where the data even is, um, what data assets there are, what prediction problems could even be uh, formulated mm. um, and or whether solved. we've or solved or, or then solved, used. acted on. Yes. And used, yeah. And so what you said about decision science, I think, is really 
true about our end of the data science spectrum because we have to use the output of our work um, to immediately justify our existence and generate value. Uh, and so a lot of what we do um, isn't necessarily going to be machine learning that we take to conferences, but we might answer some uh, really important business question with a couple of well-chosen graphs and bar charts uh, that could, could generate a huge value for the business. Uh, and that's definitely not the kind of data science you hear about on the internet. I don't think many people are talking about the value of doing lots of data cleaning, lots of talking to non-technical people, creating one bar chart at the end, um, and that's like a self-contained project. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of commentators would sort of poo-poo that and say, oh, all you did was exploratory data analysis or, or something. And I guess it's when you work in a, in a business context where you don't have a, a, a free reign to invent new machine learning algorithms, but rather to apply what is appropriate to the business problem. You know, as you said, you have to be constantly justifying your existence. I don't say that really as a complaint because it's like the flip side of having impact, right? Because if you can't, at, at the end of the day, and I've, I've always felt this in all the jobs I've had, like one reason why I don't, don't really mind keeping timesheets, at the end of the day or the end of the week, I really find it useful to look back and understand what I did and the contribution that I made um, or that my team made and that uh, and how that made someone's decision-making um, better. And realistically, if you can make uh, someone's decision-making a lot better by really understanding a problem that they're facing and narrowing it down from some big, vague question to some really specific you know, maybe it's a metric or a set of metrics or just a new way of looking at a problem. And you can, and, and, and if the MVP of your analysis is, is a graph that they've never seen before that shows them something that really makes them change their behavior uh, and maybe generates new hypotheses, new things to go and test later on, then you've moved the needle. You've demonstrated value immediately by making a graph. Um, you haven't had to go off and invent a new algorithm or choose from amongst many algorithms to solve a problem that may never be, may not be solvable, and even if you solved it, may not be acted on. And so it's also a way to get to um, uh, iterating more carefully and working in smaller, smaller, smaller chunks of time. Um, I think the just occurred to me now that you know, type A might mean academic and type B might mean business. And, was that your motivation for A and B? That was that, yeah, yeah. Okay. That, was, that was entirely. The, <laughs> Sometimes I realize things a long time after uh, <laughs> I perhaps should have. Um, if you're in the academic world, the whole point is to have open-ended exploration of the very leading edge of mm. of knowledge. Whether or not you can apply it immediately is kind of beside the point. If it's mm. it's got to be beside the point, otherwise people can't innovate. Like basic research, right? It, it, it's funded because of it will generate things that we don't even know. Mm. Uh, I think that a lot of the noise about data science and what it means to be a data scientist on on the internet, if you if you get on Twitter or um, Google your favorite "How do I become a data science scientist?" question, it's pretty overwhelming because it's basically like people definitely say things about business impact and, and all that stuff, but they also say like unless you're 
using TensorFlow to do addition, you're not a le- you're not a leading data scientist, and only leading data scientists are the data scientists that are employable and, and worth talking about talking to. Realistically, there's you know out of the type A and the type B, uh, very few of us are ever going to be the type A data scientists. They're going to work on you know, the core Facebook data science team of I assume that's large, but there's heaps more, for example, data scientists working at Facebook who are not in the core data science and machine learning teams. At Google, similarly, there's probably people working, you know, they're quite deep mind, right? The, the sort of deep learning researcher is the current person I have in my mind when I think of the ideal sort of type A data scientist, someone really, really pushing the boundaries of what's Absolutely. possible to squeeze out of data. But most of the problems in the world don't have that shape. Most of the problems of the world are people don't understand the world around them and they're making really suboptimal decisions and, and they may have an intuition that they could be making better decisions, mm. but they, they don't yet need deep learning. You know, the, the investment that they need to make to improve uh, their decision-making, the best ROI will not be by commissioning a two-year project to use deep learning to completely replace some mm. kind of human decision-making that's currently being done. It might just be a much better way to get the data in the spreadsheet or a much better way to do a short-term forecast. That you know. And some of those things, you can even do those things in Excel. So again, on this podcast, we don't define data science as you're using any particular tool toolkit or... You know, you can be type A and type B and hopefully get something about out of the things that we that we talk about. But at the end of the day, it's for us, it's what impact did you have on other people's decisions? And I guess the naming half stack data scientist is that, you know, there will be people out there who say, Well, I am both type A and type B in equal measure, you know, there is no trade off. I'm hundred percent academic and I'm hundred percent business impact. I do everything all myself, I go and get the best data, I do the best cleaning of it, I choose always the best algorithm and you know, ship the best production solution that improves uh, decision making by other people you know, absolutely optimally. And if you're one of those people, you should start your own podcast or <laughs> hopefully add a zero on your salary because you truly are unique. For most of the rest of us, there is a trade-off. How much do I pay attention to this noise about the very latest innovations versus pay attention to the problems that are in front of me in my business and try and use whatever tools uh, I can. So that half stack thing kind of hints that maybe you don't need to be a full stack data scientist to make an impact on the world. You don't need to be like be able to code JavaScript and backend web systems, but also write, you know, really production grade Spark code and also be awesome at R and Python. Um, you know, mm. Maybe not all those things are, are possible because there's certainly not qualities that any one in our three-person data science team has all in, in a single person life. Yeah, it's certainly bad to assume you can find one person to fill that role. Like If you think you can do a whole data science function with a single person that's that's asking too much of that person you're probably going to ask them to be doing other people's jobs as well mm. if you don't have dedicated teams to do other things yeah minimum they'll probably be a dba and a reporting analyst like bi analyst and, and surely that will take up all their time yeah will they ever get to uh, mm. the stuff that 
that, that probably really motivates them. One one thing you said about um, that you don't need to you don't need to apply the fanciest machine learning for everything. I actually think one of the challenges of the type B side is even if you only know one machine learning model, even if regression is the only thing in your toolkit, um, each of the questions that you have to answer with regression are all going to have different uh, business constraints. So there will be other reasons you can't just elevate that to a neural network and get 10% more accuracy because it will be either either the obvious thing of like interpretability, like shipping a black box to used car dealers for our case yeah. is a hard, hard enough sell. Um, they like transparency in how you make a recommendation. Yes, especially them. because you're trying to, um, or at least signal the fact that you're trying to improve on their intuition, which is which is a hard thing to sell to yeah. people um, as a concept. Even if you are trying to aid decision making and not replace it, mm. um, it's still you know you can't go armed with a black box. So there's that obvious constraint, but there's also other constraints of like, well, how is the output of this model going to be used? Like it might just be the constraints of a particular software system that can only take a certain type of input, in which case uh, all the predictions that you make and the features that you can use, um, you're already limited by by technical concerns. Right. So these constraints you're talking about kind of on the input side and the data you can use, but also the output, like what's the model going to be Yeah, how is it going to be deployed? For- um, yeah. it, it's interesting that every time I hear people talk about, I saw a presentation the other day, I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was one of these, we're trying to bridge the gap between, uh, R and D and production, right. which is something we'll talk about, I'm sure at some point. Um, and, and it was interesting, like they had all the same concerns that you would classically think about trying to separate R and D and production, whether we can mash it all up, um, and all these things. But then it turned out that their way of, uh, doing production was was putting a REST API on top of their um, data science models, right? Their predictive models, and I think that's probably a very common uh, a common way to deploy models in in many startups and many businesses. <clears throat> but in a legacy business where you you don't necessarily have the the ease of integration of a new API, right? Um, I think that's not that's maybe not the most obvious. Uh, way to use an output of your model. So well, you heard it here first on half-stack data science that you know, <laughs> not all models can be deployed by just putting them within some API wrapper and then you send you send some scores across the features to, to your API thing and, and yeah. then you get back uh, a, a score or a prediction. Something we, we were working on, I don't know, sometime last year was like, how do we use the outputs of our data science and our, our calculations? And the words REST API just sent shivers down our data engineer's spine, right? Yeah. Because he knew that that doesn't scale in the way that he thinks about scale. Mm. Um, and so there's a constraint, like suddenly that went out the window. We can't now come up with a solution where the end is a, a REST API and that that really limits you. Um, and so the a... challenge there is that like you, you have some existing tools that you know, and then there are other constraints that you apply on top of it. Right. Um, it makes every problem different, even if the underlying, quote, machine learning is just regression every time. Like, that's the point I was right. trying to make. Right. So if you're saying, even if you did like really great analysis of all the business problems out there and really dug into it and didn't just fall back to the one model you knew, but you know, 
even if you went out talked to all the different stakeholders across your large legacy business, be it in banking, in manufacturing, wherever, even if you found that the answer to every business problem was some kind of regression model, uh, you're not home in terms of uh, productionizing that, and it's not as no. simple as just um, getting your parameter estimates out of your regression model and, and hard-coding those into something, because every business area, even if all the problems end up being solved with, with regression, um, might be able to deploy might not be able to deploy things in, in, in all the same same way yeah so I think part of the half stack is right. that um, you don't need it's the okay. full spectrum of yeah. fancy machine learning because even if you use regression each project is going to be different anyway yeah so if it, like well, what I was trying to preempt is um, that this might sound really boring that we only use quote like base machine learning algorithms, but because every project is so different with all its other constraints. Yeah. Um, still a lot of variety. There's still a lot of variety yeah. and you can still add value by using a, a smaller set of tools that you know, uh, you, that you know better. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is that you don't need to be full stack because you don't necessarily need to know how to deploy a REST API on top of your model um, because that might not even be plausible. So yeah. there might be an upper limit to how much uh, how much your outputs have to resemble software. Mm. Certainly in a lot of the work that we do, we're contributing to the building of large kind of batch processing systems. And so if we were to train, uh, build and train some fantastic model to predict some predict something that was, that was of value and then just use one of the you know, packages that you can get in, Python and R or one of the platforms that are out there to just deploy that to in some REST API framework. Um, when our data engineers came to send 100,000 uh, questions to that REST API, it might die um, immediately. And it's, it's not, you know, if I guess if you're really, really full stake, that you're also a data engineer and so you'll, you'll build APIs that are resilient and can take bulk uh, questions and give back bulk answers, but um, if you're sending big data, if you like, to your um, to your models in production, it's probably good to have someone who's really good at thinking about production problems handle that productionizing process. Uh, that of course leads to the the problem of how do you avoid the R and D on what the model should be being thrown over the fence, you know. Uh, in, a, in a foreign language, if you like, to people who don't understand that. Um, we'll talk more about that um, uh, on this podcast. Okay, I think that was episode one of Half Stack Data Science. In the can. In the can. Thank you for listening. Uh, and if you're interested in what we've been saying so far, uh, we are giving a version of, well, this episode some of, really, some of these remarks, with yes. pictures. Uh, and some more information at Strata Conference in London on the 24th of May, 2018. Just in case you're listening to this. In case you're listening to this in the future, you've missed it. But we may or may not have the video available from that to share. I don't know. And we'll be recording further episodes. We've got a long list of topics, things that we talk about day to day at, at work. And our focus is really going to be on how you solve 
Um, not so much the uh, those sort of hardcore type A machine learning problems. How do you what what kernel do you use in an SVM to squeeze out the best predictive performance on the Titanic dataset or whatever? <laughs> We're going to spend a lot more time talking about, I guess, the human side, um, the the people, the processes how you scale those, how you increase the impact of data science in, in your organization, particularly legacy, quote-unquote, organizations with you know lots of data lying around and lots of different systems, um, but it can be difficult to get to and it can be difficult to connect that data to stakeholders who really want to act on what you might build in data science. Um, and then we're going to talk a lot about um, how, we, how we, given our processes and our maturity, as a data science team, um, try to make sure we have all the right technical tools um, because you can't you can't scale your impact as a team unless you are getting more efficient at doing the things that are uh, repetitive. And that that those two themes, you know, scaling teams and scaling tech, is um, coincidentally the name of our talk. not an accident. And uh, and just because we believe that despite the proportion of type A versus type B content out there, the reality certainly for the future will be that type B data science will become more and more important as companies realize you can't just hire a unicorn, you need to be much more thoughtful about how you do data science. Uh, and we just have a lot to say about that. So tune in next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>